0: This is the final episode, Resettlement and Resilience, in the series Savannah to Suburbia, South Sudanese-Australian Stories. In episode four, we heard of the brutal split within the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, the SPLM, that began in 1991 and continues to cause destruction within South Sudan to this day. We also heard how the refugee camp of Kakuma in Kenya became a longer-term, though temporary, home to many of the refugees who had fled the civil war. My name's Jennifer Huxley. In this episode, we'll hear stories of the prolonged wait in refugee camps and other places before resettlement, how people came to Australia and what that's been like, and the ways in which over the decades Australian immigration policies have shaped the experiences of different migrant groups, including those from South Sudan. We'll also hear about the impact of the new civil war in South Sudan on the communities in Australia, their efforts to help family members and other people caught up yet again in this unrelenting conflict, and their support and efforts to promote dialogue and a lasting peace. Some stories have been told in Other Voices, where the original recordings were unclear. In
1: Australia, it is good, nothing bad now. I studied at CIT for two years. I have a government house. I am working until now. I worked at Calvary Hospital for seven years cleaning. Now I am working at the police commission.
2: I arrived in Australia on 18 May 2005 at Canberra airport. I was received by Ball and offered me accommodation for six months in his house. And after that, I applied for government housing. And they accepted my application. After that, I went to CIT to learn English language to prepare me for work. I studied for two years and I applied for a cleaning job. From my earning, I tried to save some money for my kid future. After some years of saving, I bought a house for my children in 2014. I tried. I thank the Australian government for offering chances to the needy people like me to come to this beautiful and faithful country. God bless Australia.
3: When I came to Australia, I went to Canberra. It was very good, a very different environment. There were very few South Sudanese in that area. It was a bit challenging coming to a different city. To begin life again is one of the challenges. The reality is that I didn't have a good life. Being in different places and being in a refugee camp in a remote part of Kenya. Coming to Australia and city like Canberra, I was really struggling to make my life better. Juggling between work, studies, family, helping people back home, trying to find a job, getting myself familiar with the environment and people around. It was a bit challenging. I had just finished my diploma in social work in Kenya, so I got an opportunity that others did not. I was among the South Sudanese who had a social work background and there was a need for organisations to employ someone for that so that I got a job within a few months. But working with people who were completely different, with a completely different mindset was an adjustment for me as well as struggling with studies with a different style of teaching, a very complex way of doing things.
4: I was in Kukuma for nine years. From there, I found my way to Australia, to Canberra in 2005. When I submitted the application form for resettlement, I forgot about it because I had to wait for three years. Taking a long time like that, I thought, it's gone, and I forgot about it. Then I got married. I finished my high school, and I finished my other courses. I met my wife in the camp, so I was all right, just with my life there and my family. Three months after I got married, someone saw my name on the board because there was this big notice board in the centre of our area. My cousin got my name and came and said, Hey John, I saw a name like yours on the notices board. Might be yours. Go and check it out for yourself. So I went there and it was me. After that, I went for an interview. In six months, the process was completed and I came to Australia. My wife didn't come with me. I asked, but when I applied, it was just for myself. They said, you've got two choices. Either you include your wife and the process starts again and there's a possibility that your form might be rejected. The possibility of being rejected was around 95% if I included my wife. Or you go and then they apply for your wife. So we sat down as a family and they advised me to go alone. When you get there, you apply for your wife. So I came, by myself. When I came, I had a lot of responsibilities. I had to settle first, to work and study. My wife came then in 2011. It was a long time because I had to find a job. If I can't support them, there's no hurry and I might lose the things that I decide to do. So I had to study and work. I had to prioritise study and work and support them. After finishing my studies, I would bring them and work and do other studies part-time. That's how I did it.
0: Since the first boat people arrived in 1788, Australia's been a country built on immigration. But starting with federation in 1901, it's been very selective immigration. The White Australia policy operated for the next half century. Although Australia became one of the first countries to become a signatory to the United Nations Refugee Convention in 1954, this limited obligations to refugees originating from Europe. In 1966, Australia, under the Holt Coalition government, signed the United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. The Whitlam Labor Government signed the 1967 Protocol to the Refugee Convention in 1973. This protocol extended the limited definition in the convention to include all refugees, whatever their country or place of origin. In 1975, the Whitlam Government also passed the Federal Racial Discrimination Act. Under the Fraser Coalition government, the next seven years saw the effective end of the White Australia policy. Between 1975 and 1982, some 200,000 migrants arrived from Asian countries, including nearly 56,000 Vietnamese people who applied as refugees. This was also the time that non white immigration from Africa slowly began. In 1991, there were just over 1,000 from Sudan. In 2001, it was just under 5,000. In the next five years, the numbers increased by almost six times to around 24,500, making it the third largest African birthplace group in Australia by 2008. Most came under the Commonwealth's special humanitarian program, reflecting the massive displacement caused by the Second Civil War and the internal conflict between John Garang and Riek Machar.
1: The conditions in Kakuma were very bad, a lot of people were sick, it was very hot, there was not enough food because there was not enough food or money in the camp. I used to go to the town to buy sorghum and vegetables. I would prepare them and sell them. That is the way I used to live during those 9 years. Then in 2005 I came to Australia. My mother's in-law's sister, Sarah Adut Deng, is in Cambra 2. She sent a letter with the four. In 2006, my husband died. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, they told me he was still alive. In 2006, he returned to the village and he was killed. I never saw him again. I used to have five uncles, four were killed in the war, and one auntie. My mother was killed, my father was killed, my sister was killed, my brother was killed. Ten people. My family was all taken. Here, there is only me and
5: my daughter. Then we did the form for Australia. I passed the interview. They gave me the form to fill in. We waited for the process to finish, and then we came here. I had the UN pass, and I saw pictures of Australia. People were eating corn. I thought, wow, this is like my country. Then we asked, do you have African food there? And they said yes. And I said, wow, this is a place I want to go to more than anything. And God answered my prayer. You have to wait. You have to do a medical and wait for the results. Then you wait for your visa. I had my cousin here already in Tasmania. We went first to Tasmania, to Launceston. It's a beautiful place but it's too cold. It's very cold. I don't like very cold. We still have friends there. I'm going to see them tomorrow. Launceston is a bit like Melbourne but here it's like back home. You can find a lot of people. I found a lot of my old school friends, our neighbours. It's very good. Like we are back home and there is a lot of African food
2: here. After 12 years in the camp, I asked one of my relatives, who is now in Sydney, to help me with form, and he did. I arrived in Sydney on 25th of November 2003. Being in Australia is life-changing. I am lucky to be in a country which has no wars. God bless Australia for helping needy people like me.
3: The journey to Australia was not straightforward or easy. What I've experienced, I've been in very big capital cities, Kampala, Nairobi khartoum cairo and also in australia when i was in egypt they are the most different from other people i was there for four years and it's very tough to live in egypt if you can live in egypt you can live anywhere else in the world i remember when i arrived in port aswan egypt because i came by train to alfa border of sudan and egypt and then i took the boat from Alpha sudan to Aswan, Egypt. The first thing I experienced when I arrived in the morning was the transport. The first ones who can land are Egyptians. They're the ones who land and get the transport. That's number one. Number two, if you're a Muslim. Number three, if you're from Europe or somewhere like that, you come next. If you're a Muslim but a black Muslim, you come after that. We Christians, we are at the end. We arrived in the morning in Cairo, but we were the last to land around one o'clock in the afternoon. By the time we got there, there was no transport. We had to wait until the evening for the cars that had gone to Cairo and come back. We had to travel all night and arrived in Cairo the next morning.
6: So when I came to Australia in 2004, my younger brother left before me. He went to United States. There were three. They went to United States under the program of Lost Boy. So I was one among the Lost Boys, but the route changed. So I came here and they went to United States. In 2003, I met with mom because I learned that she came back to Jonglei State. And I went back to Sudan to see them. I went and met with her at the village, but I didn't see the kid because they were left. In a uh, mudding bowl, where the government was controlling, so I didn't went there. The mom came out we met in the village, and when I preparing to come here, he came back again, and he went and he went back to the village where I booked a ticket to come to Kenya mm. to visit me mm. and mm. to see my kid before we came here so when I came here on her back to Sudan to get car accident in Kenya and she died there. Mm. So I arrived here on 25th uh, of August, The following on 24th. The following day, which is 25th, I get the news. It was so bad because the day I left, the same day she booked her ticket to go back mm. to Kenya border to get applied there to Sudan, but she got car accident on the way. So it was really bad. So that's how I lost my mom. The kids left there. They are still alive now. We communicate, but they are in different places. One of my younger brother is now in Cairo, in Egypt, with his family. My sister is now in, in uh, Uganda, in Uganda, camp, with her family. Uh, one, of the bro- one of my brother is in Juba with his family. The other brother is in this place camp in South Sudan there, with his family. So the whole family is scattered.
4: Coming to Australia wasn't easy. The first thing was a humanitarian visa issued by the Australian government to refugees. And there was also a humanitarian program run by the US. Most of the people went to the US. Those who come from Pinido they called them the lost boys. I would have gone to the US, but I didn't want to because I didn't want to be separated again from my parent. My mum wouldn't have been able to go, only I personally could go there, so I declined. Then, at a later time, one of my nephews, he was extended family, came to Australia. He was helped by his uncle to come to Australia. I was living with him before that. So, when he left, he gave me this promise that he would send me a form. After a certain time, he sent a form to me, we filled in that form for myself, my brother's wife and my nephew, my sister's son. I was supposed to come with my mum, but the form was specific. I told my mum it was better to take the boy, because you would get support from us. If I take this young boy, he will be able to help his mum at a later time. He could go to school and get a better education from there, and he could help his mum. So we did a substitution. That's what I organised, and that's what we did. When I came with my brother's wife, my sister's sons, and with my two in laws, sisters to my brother's wife, there were eight people on the form. I lodged the form on September 11, 2001, when the Twin Towers happened. It took a while to go for an interview. In 2003, we got letters to go for an interview. We went for the interview. We did the interview. They normally get someone to translate, but I was lucky, because sometimes translation doesn't work well. We went there, and there was no translator. Then someone came to us and said, Who is ready to go and can speak by himself? So I said, Yes. Immediately after the interview, I was told by the interviewer, You've done well. And we were given a form. It was called Form 80. You don't get it if you didn't get through. They gave that form straight away and said, go and fill it out outside and bring it back. So I went and filled out the form and brought it back to him and he said, in two to five days, you will be called for a medical. And everything was done exactly as
0: he said. People also faced big challenges when they arrived in Australia. Although the vast majority of refugees from southern Sudan are Christian, South Sudanese culture is in many ways different from that of the host community. Many lacked English language when they arrived and had a history of broken or limited education. These issues also led to problems in entering the Australian labour market. However, what's clear from these stories is people's hard work and their commitment to overcoming these challenges.
7: In New Zealand, when I came to New Zealand, really, the life was good. In New Zealand, because I'm happy. My children, they go to school, they went to school. And also I went to school, and I do my little job. When I went to Nizan, I have to go to English courses. I went to adult education. And then after that, I did a course, healthcare care assistant, and I got a part-time job. And I went back again. I did community health. I did social services. And I did mental health, and then I work in rehab, and sometimes I work in jail, women jail. Ah, uh, in New Zealand, really, we are not many. It's not a big number. In Auckland, I think we are 150 family, but Wellington, I think many Sudanese die in Wellington. Yeah, I was in Auckland. Oh, isn't it really, I don't feel lonely because my kid is there and also we have the Sudanese gather together sometimes. Mm. But also home is home. Cry, you are happy. <laughs> sometimes you get confused. Yeah, it's not really, not easy. But I did my best.
8: But there is a culture conflict between the two cultures. To fit these two cultures together is very hard because some of our people, they didn't go to school. They didn't have the opportunity to go to school. Not because they didn't want it, but because there was no opportunity, especially the women. They're suffering a lot.
4: The majority of things are good. You can go to school. First, I went to school. I went to the CIT. I did Year 11 and Year 12 at the CIT. It was a good thing for me. I progressed from there. I got a job with Red Rooster. It was with the help of the Salvation Army. That was very important. The Salvation Army did really support us. A lot when we first arrived. I started working at Red Rooster as an assistant manager. I went five days a week. I worked there for about eight months. Within six months, I was transferred to Red Rooster in Quimbead. But I didn't drive. One of the Salvation Army who were really supporting our family, our wife and husband, he dropped me at Quimbead. I started around four, I think, And finished around 12 at night. And he'd go there and he'd pick me up. Then I said, this is not good. I don't feel good about this. So I had to resign because I could see it was no good. So I resigned from that job and then I went and did the security training course. It took me a month to get a job and then I got a security job at the Canberra Centre. I worked there for the security industry for about three years. I was doing night shift from 11 till 7 in the morning, and then I had to go to uni. It wasn't easy, because I didn't finish until 7 in the morning, so I had to find a way to change that.
9: But yeah, after, yeah, yeah I went to school there, completed my high school, then graduated in Pennsylvania State University uh, with accounting, and then I did a, a Master's MBA, Master's of Business in, in America. So pretty much my life was changed over there. And, and I got a really good job there. I was working with that private company. Uh, it's a trust. It's like super innovation here. with the trust company. So it was really nice. And, and I think that's what, when I, was, when, when I applied to come here, they look at those, you know, say, okay, this person can come here and support himself and he can work. So when the, the first... When I was here, the first week when I came here, I went to the sandling, I went to the, they say no, nope, we're not going to help you. You can help yourself. You don't need any help. And within one week, I found a job with the uh, Time Telecom. Then they move. I found a job with Canberra Taxi. So, yeah, it was job after, after that because I came with a very good experience. And yeah.
0: Some of the immediate challenges that people faced when they first arrived remain very vivid.
8: When I first came to Australia, to Melbourne, one of the things that surprised me was that you didn't see people walking in the street. Where are the people? I don't see them. Everyone was inside their houses and in their cars. You don't see them walking on the roadside. Everyone is in the car. It also surprised me why everyone was carrying the dog, why everyone was carrying the cat.
10: I came to Australia as uh have been responsible for my uh, cousin. I came with my um, uncle family. We were... Uh, Four in number, and we were really waiting for a long, long time. our, our application was submitted in in two thousand and two. Took me four another four years waiting for process to come to Australia. Australia. We came to Australia to Canberra. That's where my uncle lived here. Yeah. Oh, terrible! We came in the winter time. That was ah. the person that we met. The very extremely weather, which we never. Being in a cold weather like me mm-hmm. in Canberra. <laughs> First time I came in, so during the morning when I we kite the bus, come to CIT, it's very, very cold. Mm-hmm. We tried to cover ourselves as we could. We thought that we got a very silly jumper, but it didn't work until I used to wear seven layers.
2: All right.
10: <laughs> 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 Keep building up and building up. It's getting used to because I've been here not long enough now. Yeah, but I still remember the first winter here yeah, was very harsh. Yes, and we thought that uh, things were really going to change completely, but it was quite uh, difficult sometimes because even though you are okay here and you still thinking about, about your mm-hmm. family back home, and during the night time you stabbing by the phone, the rings and you pick it up and hear what they say which is make it uh, terrible for people to manage here. You're just living here by your body but your heart mm-hmm. is back so that's what we've been doing for some years. A lot of people they experience this one and which is a very traumatizing situation.
4: Coming to camera was a culture shock. We came in November 2004. I felt cold then because Kakuma was the hottest place ever. Very dry and windy. There were other things, like the food, and also the way Australians organise. Like, if you go to the bus, you see something like a line. But sometimes it's not a line. And sometimes it is a line. And you feel confused. And sometimes you go in front of people standing in a line and that's not good. You feel embarrassed because you've jumped the line. That was the first thing that was a challenge for me. Because in the bus stations in Sudan, people stand around. It's not like a straight line where you can even know that this is a line. And the food was completely different. It's completely different. It smells and tastes different. It took me a while actually to eat the food. There was even food that was brought to us, I think by the Salvation Army. It was a combined pizza that was the best food, but we didn't eat that food. They left the food with us, but no one ate the food. It smelled different. Everything was different. I was
11: early twenties. It was such an amazing place. Yeah, he said, yeah, Australia. By then, it's it's, it's a dream come true. You come to a new country where everything you see—trees, waters, stuff like that—you say, "Wow, it's nice. It's nice place to live." I was supposed to study and finish my university. My dream um, career is to be psychologist and um, in a social work side. So um, I study English first, vocation, so that I could get into uni. And in the middle I don't know what happened, I got married and had kids. But it didn't just end up like that. I'm still doing that now. I, I had after I had my first twin, my second twins, I could do it online, and this this uh this is my second year now, of um f- finishing my bachelor degree online, on psychology psychological science, and I'm actually really proud that I actually did second year with. First first twin are six years and a half. They go to school. And second set are 15 months only. They're still babies. And I'm doing studies online at home. So, um, yeah, I couldn't do it then. I don't know what forbade me because I had to work and send some money to my mom and my siblings. Uh, I couldn't do study and work and stuff like that. It was too overloaded and overwhelmed for me. So I just worked, 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 worked. And then in the middle got married, had kids. And I'm like, wow, where's my studies? Where's my dream? And yeah, could handle it with kids now, which is extremely difficult. It's very hard, but I'm getting there.
2: <laughs> in Sydney, I went to ACL at Parramatta to learn English language. And after I finished certificate two and three in English, I done certificate three in AK care, and I work as a carer. At Anglican Retirement Village, I live. In Sydney for five years, I moved to Wagga Wagga. I done the same job. After five years, I moved to Canberra because all my relative lives here. So I feel at home.
5: They arrived in Sydney in 2003, and they are the ones who supported me to go to Egypt and to Australia. I arrived in Australia on the 15th of September 2005 at Sydney Airport. I stayed in Sydney for two years and then moved to Canberra. I applied for government housing. They accepted my application and offered me a three bedroom house. My older daughter got married and is blessed with four kids. God bless Australia for opening doors of help for South Sudanese widows and all the needy people around the world. Thank you, Australia.
12: Tago and you be, not be.
0: One of the biggest challenges for these newly arrived refugees came from an unexpected quarter, the Federal Minister for Immigration. In 2007, the then Minister, Kevin Andrews, stated, I've been concerned that some groups don't seem to be settling and adjusting into the Australian way of life as quickly as we would hope. He added that it made sense to slow down the rate of intake from countries such as Sudan. That subsequent slowdown made it more difficult for South Sudanese Australians to assist family members who are still displaced in Africa to join them in Australia.
6: So now all my younger brothers are now scattered. One is in Egypt with his family. I've tried to send him a form to bring him here, but he failed three times. So I don't know. The life there is not good. Okay. First of all, he, he has a UNHCR visa to live there. But living costs is quite expensive for them because there is no, there is no work. They are relying on me, on what I have said to them. That's what they live on. For medical, food, accommodation, a uh, uh, school for the kids, clothes, Everything is lying on me. There is no ROPAG scam there. But UNHCR provide them with a business to protect them. I don't know. According to what I see in the letter, they say it didn't meet the criteria. And what I did, I put the same story I used when I came here. And my history went successfully. But they say it's fair. No, it's ROPAG. It has uh, all UNHCR ROPAG's card with them, which similar to what I have when I was in Kenya. It's the same. But I don't know. I filled the form three times using the same story I used, and they say it's not meeting the criteria.
1: Before, my husband married another wife. They had one boy. In 2008, I went back to Port to bring her to Kenya, but not to Kakuma. Now she has another two children. We have a tradition that when a husband passes away, his brother will come to live with them. So now there are three boys, but the mother took them and put them in a school for orphans. Though so they are in a boarding school and I am paying for them. 1200 per day. $1,200 per day. And in Kenya, they have three tales. Now I am trying to bring them here.
13: We stayed there in Queensland again. And in 2008, I went back to, uh, to Kenya. But that, by that time, I didn't go back to the village. I stayed with my wife and my two kids. There were two by then. We stayed with them in Akoro and started the process because the first form that I launched was rejected which was really terrible for me, and the second for my it in my second trip, and it was successful. Okay. So they joined me in 2009. Yeah, they came in 2009 while, when I was in, in Queensland, and we moved in 2010 to Canberra.
0: Young South Sudanese Australian men were also targeted at the beginning of 2018 by the current Minister for Home Affairs, Peter Dutton. On the basis of recent reports of violence in Melbourne, he claimed, The reality is people are scared to go out to restaurants of a night time because they're followed home by these gangs. We just need to call it for what it is, African gang violence. The media quickly made clear that, by African, the minister was referring in particular to the next generation of South Sudanese Australians. Their parents are aware of these difficulties and spend much of their spare time working with young people and their families in the community. On most weekends, the Daughters of Jerusalem walk the streets of Dandenong in Melbourne's southeast to provide assistance to young people in need. The group is made up of volunteer women from the community. The service developed from mainly South Sudanese church groups in the area. Other community members are dedicated to improving and supporting families adjusting to the conditions of being in a new country and culture.
3: I am here now. i finished my degree. I'm working in the community. I run a number of community programs here in Melbourne. We are doing a project now for South Sudanese youth and families, looking at engaging the families and young people and the community as well, Asking what are the priorities for me as an individual, for the group, for the parents. We are seeing what is called intergenerational conflict. We feel as parents that the children don't understand us and we don't understand them because they are growing up in a different environment. What they're learning in school may they're things the parents don't know. We need to fix that very deep gap, working with the school coming together and sharing our knowledge and experience. That's the project that I'm working on. It's funded by the Wyndham City Council to work with the South Sudanese in this area. I did a number of projects before when I was in Canberra. I was supporting young people in soccer activities, health promotion at programs, helping newly arrived kids in school and doing bicultural work. It's led now to my occupational work in mental health, in counselling, in community development. One project is called Families in Cultural Transition. One part of that is dealing with trauma. I asked some guys, what is trauma? And someone said, it's a sickness of the brain, a sickness of thinking. And I was saying, no, no, that's not what it is. For South Sudanese, because many were born in war, Many are traumatised. But they won't tell you, I'm traumatised. I need counselling. If you tell them, they'll take it as an insult, as though you're saying, you're mad. That comes from the culture. You don't want to expose your own problems. You deal with it at the individual level.
0: Other people belie the minister's criticism with their energetic optimism.
9: Life is good. Um, I find Australia really good to raise a family. Like now, I have, uh, six kids. Uh, my wife, uh, we got, uh, I have to plan for them for the future. Um, because I grew up in that sense, not experiencing the full, you know, growing up with a parent and the whole family together until, you know, so I have to start my own, you know, my own family um, and and set that bar for my kids. Uh, because every time I ask them, they say, you know, what do you want to do in the future? One of them will say, I want to be a taxi driver like a daddy. I say, no, 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 you're not, <laughs> not going to be a taxi driver. <laughs> because it's that role model. So they like what daddy do. Maybe they, they like what mommy and you know, that's and they would associate themselves with those. So living here, um, I don't think about what happened in a lot in the past. Um uh it, when I do this some interviews that's when I'll talk about them. But I don't I don't make them as part of my life. Um, yes, it's part of my experience and I learn from those. But living here I think is a very a very good country. Uh a lot of opportunities. Uh, some other, it depends on, on, on the individual, your own commitment and, and the plan. Um, so, yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm continually studying, raising the family, working, and supporting also uh, my relative back home. So, yeah, and you do all this here in this country because everything is there. As long as you have the will and ambition to do it, you just follow, follow through. Um, like the job I got, if I didn't have friends like Noel, um, you, um, Judy, uh, Warwick that put give me those that very uh, good recommendation, you know, I would not get that job with the government. Very hard. But people from here, even and even the job network that, that I used to go to, they are best, they are surprised. They say, How do you get nobody go get that good job that job all the people that come to them, even in Australia, they don't get it. But, and that, but he, through that experience that, you know, and what I want to do, um, that's what I told them, you know. So I tell them, you yeah, know, yeah, I want, I want to make a different change in the community. And I give a specific example of what I want to do. Um, and they, they like it. So the, the, the lady from the recruitment called me in and he's, he's saying, yeah, they were really impressed about what he told them. You really open up and give them, your life and what do you dream and what do you want to do? Um, because I didn't tell them I was gonna lock the doors in the prison because I didn't know what the prison looked like, but I told them different, different things, you know, and it's you know, how I work for the community and what can I do for the South Sudanese young people that are here. That's what I tell them, and, and that's exactly what they do over there. Uh, they're not like a prison, but it's like a, a rehabilitation center. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, in in this, it's, in this country, there are many opportunities, but there are many also other things that can um, uh, let you down, or people think that, you know, especially the hiring process here is very racist. Uh, they will call you on the phone first to hear... You got accent, you don't speak good English, and then they will not call you. That's that the, uh, everybody's aware of that. Mm. And that's why a lot of South Sudanese here don't get a job. Mm. Um, you, you know, you qualify, but when it comes to communication, they will know definitely. Because these are recruitment agents. They don't care. They want someone the best to do the job. And they will send it to another company. So they don't want to raise their own. I'm still proud of where I came from uh as uh, south sudan and and I'm I'm trying to maintain to pass that some tradition the good thing to my to my kids who we'll do some community event who we'll take them there um and who we'll tell them about what is going on in south sudan um uh, and also I want them also to grow up as you know you know australian so they know they were born here, okay, this is where they they show this is this is their first this is their you know place to grow up and and yeah, and it's it's balancing balancing that
14: I reckon with my generation we and or'cause well, my brother when he came in his generation, they were like a bit older than us, so they remember a lot back then, so Coming here was a lot harder for them to transition. He was, he was seven years older than me, so he was 14 when he came. So, for him for, like, cause he grew up a lot, like, he remembers a lot in Africa. And, um, he went through a lot as well because he went from, like, he was born in Ethiopia and they came, him and mom, like, they, like, you know, they had to run from Ethiopia, the refugee camp. So, I reckon that had a big impact on him moving here and it was harder. And then school as well on top of that. And, um, and then the stress so I reckon with me it was easier when I transitioned because I was a lot younger because it felt like I grew up here because like I did remember a little bit back then but it was a lot easier for me so my generation I reckon we don't have like that pain or that hurt that they went through like my brother's generation and I reckon we are like we have more blessed like we have a lot of the a lot of opportunities here in Australia now and I reckon with my generation now the only thing we can do is like give back especially now that we are. Like, we have all this knowledge, all this information and, yeah, there's just a lot of people back there, like, needs help, like, because there's a lot of, like, kids in my generation too who are still growing up there and they don't have school or, like, the little things that we have here and we take for granted. So I reckon, like, with my generation, that's just one thing I find important, like, we have that knowledge. and
0: Even for young people born in refugee camps outside Sudan and with no direct memories of the civil war between the South and the North, war in South Sudan continues to have an impact. For those who came as refugees from war, the new civil war throws yet another shadow over their lives here. This is not how it was meant to be. In 2011, South Sudan finally gained its independence from the north.
4: In 2011, I went back to South Sudan, where I took part in referendum voting, and that's when I went to submit my wife's application for Australia. Then I took them to South Sudan. We celebrated our referendum together. It was overwhelming. There was a resistance from the Sudan government, knowing if the government gave Southerners the right to vote, immediately they would vote yes to separate. But the Sudan government was under pressure from international communities to get that day to happen. And that day actually happened and everyone voted. Even here in Australia. Everyone voted. It was amazing. We were really happy. The day of independence, July 2011, was another big day. When that day came, I was in Canberra. There were so many media outlets there in the front of ACT Legislative Assembly. We were there. We displayed our flags. It was great to gain independence after quite a long time. Many families were no longer there. Many families were killed, died of hunger or diseases. But that day happened. And even if we lost people, those lives have now been compensated because we got the country. It was
12: amazing. <laughs>
0: the rejoicing over independence was short-lived. In 2013, the long-running rivalry within the SPLA that had first erupted in 1991 between John Garang and Riek Machar now escalated into an even more savage civil war within the new country. Inevitably, though not without complete accuracy, the conflict was ethnicised into a struggle between the mainly Dinka of President Salva Kiir and the Nuer followers of Riek Machar though it has also dragged in most of the other tribal groups. This breakdown of peace was not without some interference from the north.
13: The days I came for Maria real marriage, that is the time the war started on the 15th of December 2013. From 2011, that is where this summer crisis started up. People become starting looking for changes of leadership. While there were already election was conducted, which is supposed to be made on 2015, uh, but the rebel they were make it early. They supposed to let the election be done, and then this they could be the a right time for them to claim. But they started while even the president K was still having two years from his nomination to as a president. Yeah. So this thing now the the war affecting the country. Many people have gone out. So it is really a fact because they are not able to... We were relying only on the oil, okay? In the oil market, the the oil reduce Prices are reduced for the oil. You know? okay. uh, because of insecurity, we are not producing money also. The production has become decreasing. It's only area of pollution now. But before they were using unity instead, So there were two we were using, but now it's only one station of always. So that's why there's no money.
0: The civil war in South Sudan intrudes into lives here, bringing as it does a return to chaos, destruction and famine to the land they left that they thought and hoped never to see again. It has split the communities in Australia along the same ethnic lines of Dinka and Nuer. It revives memories of suffering and loss that continue to haunt those who experience civil war with the North. It places extra burdens of responsibility on people whose connections with their country of origin remain strong. The new war in South Sudan
2: after independence is a big shocking to me and all the South Sudanese around the world. When I think about it, it reminded me of those terrible attacks when I lost my lovely husband and beautiful twins of mine who died by hunger. When I watched SSTB, I couldn't stop thinking and crying because the people lost in this war are more than the ones we lost in the First War between South and North. Children, women, and vulnerable people are the victims of this war. They are dying day and night because by hunger and killing by a known personnel. Until now, I never heard any news about my sister and her family after this war, whether they are alive or dead, I'm begging UN human rights to stop this killing by sending more peacekeepers into South Sudan. I also pray to God to put peace into Sudanese government heart and thank you. Yes. Yes. Very big impact because Mm.
15: you hear always at night all the nights telephone during the day that person has been killed, that person has died, that person is doing what. Those who are alive are calling for help, crying. All the nights, help me, I'm sick, I'm doing this, I can't afford this, I'm hungry, I'm in a very bad situation, my child is like this. And these are the very bad news that people are hearing every day and night. Yes, so it is really very bad here. You don't have money. The very little that you receive from the centerling today you give. When you have your fortnight, you can give fifty dollars to that crying person. The next day you give the fifty, and have impact from us here. Yeah, you can have uh, what you cannot even have your very good meal here. The very little you have, you cannot buy chicken and lot of things that you need and all this. No, you have to economise it so that you have very little remaining so that you can have with this is what we are doing.
3: The new war in South Sudan is having a very great impact. I wrote an article in the Canberra Times condemning that war. This is part of the project that I'm doing because the war has created a very big gap. When South Sudan got independence, people were coming together to move forward. But the war started again. The social connection was falling apart. Now, having lost that connection, and South Sudan has about 64 ethnic communities, there is now fear. It's very hard to socialise, so that war is having a lot of impact. Another effect is that people were moving back to South Sudan and now they're back in refugee camps and we have to support them. So there is no rest for some of us. When independence came, we thought we would give people support to go back, maybe build houses for them or give them money to start life again in South Sudan and then we would be free to raise our kids. But now it's changed. We have all the responsibilities. We are receiving phone calls. We are helping people with food and basic needs to keep going to school. Helping people who are sick because the infrastructure in South Sudan is being destroyed. No development is happening. There's a very big impact at the individual level and as a community as well. My father and sisters and cousins are all in South Sudan. We live in extended families, especially Dinka. My father is now 114 or 15 years old. He's still living at home. There's a great fear all the time that we won't hear about him. My brother's family came here last year. I decided to bring them. I was thinking of repatriating back to South Sudan, but because of the war, I didn't want to be supporting them for the next 10 or 20 years, so I said, OK. I will bring them here. My brother's family and my sister's kids are actually orphans. They are here with me. You come to the point where helping your country is very important. But what is the point of liberating South Sudan when the leaders don't look at the common people, the suffering of the people? It's all very well for the leaders, but the people who are affected is the terrible part of it. I hope that through the resilience of the people of South Sudan, things will become normal again. We hope, we hope, we hope there is a solution. With regime, regime changes, always new things come. Maybe there'll be a change of regime and maybe a new thing will come.
4: For the community here, the war has its costs too. It actually confused people. The war is based on tribal lines. Because two major tribes are now at war. As they fight, the problem escalates, creating a big gap. And the gap is becoming wider and wider and wider. How to close the gap? needs to start from the top. From the president and the people and the government to reconcile. If they reconcile and they work together, the people will come together. The bad thing now is not just the Dinka and Nuer fighting. Other tribes too are currently involved directly or indirectly in wars and this is the worst part of the conflict as the whole country drove deep into the crisis, making it one of the worst human atrocities of its kind. If the South Sudan government don't control this now, South Sudan as a country will be in a state of anarchy where whoever has the power might be able to form his own government. I'm feeling that If there's no immediate intervention or immediate solution, the country will fall into a state of anarchy, with each tribe with its own army, its own militias, trying to defend its own territory. You can't even walk from point A to point B without being killed. So it's hard. But here, settling in Australia might be different from person to person. To be able to settle and say, now I'm fully settled. You have a good job and you have a connection with the community. Actually, we are working really hard. When we came, we thought, Australia is my home, and South Sudan is my home too. But now, the 2015 political crisis in South Sudan has changed a lot of people's minds to think about, okay, let me concentrate on making my life here instead of dividing my resources. What we realised is, that country is not stable. We say, okay, Australia is my permanent place. If South Sudan becomes stable with security and all the insecurity returning to normal, I would visit them and see what I can do. But right now, we are working really hard and establishing this life here. It's not like three years ago when people had that idea of getting social housing. It's changing now towards owning a home, depending on yourself. Maybe now six families out of ten have mortgages. When you have a mortgage, you're not free anymore. You have to work for it. It changes the way people think, and you focus on what you've got here. So we're settled. We've got mortgages. We've established our family. We need to be Australian.
3: When South Sudan got independence, expectation was very high. When self-determination was initiated and people were asked to vote, People did expect that, when South Sinan separated from the North, they would be better off. That's what we were all expecting, and certainly it's not. Things are getting worse. When we separated from the North, the Southerners would run their own affairs, and they would do it to the best for their own people. They're doing it, but they're not doing it to the expectations. The top leaders now, they started fighting over resources, and innocent people are dying. This time, they don't know why they're dying. They don't have any idea why they're dying. These people should be enjoying their freedom. They should be enjoying their separation. At the moment, it's completely terrible. It's a multi-ethnic fight. People started inciting other people and created the issue of fighting among the Dinka and the Nuer. The vice-president was from the Nuer and the president is from the Dinka. But they are really fighting for their own interests. It's not the people's welfare. It's about the leaders being greedy. That's one thing. There is also fighting between Nuer, Dinka and Murrell. And there are other tribes like Equatorians. So you don't really know... How you can put these pieces together, and you don't even know who is from where and who is from what and why these people are fighting. That's the problem. There's no good environment. That's the issue at the moment. People did expect when the Southerners got their independence they would do their best to make sure that the twenty one years of war would be invisible and people would have to reap what they sowed during this time. But no. For the community here, there is a lot of impact because people are losing their relatives and they are hearing news all the time that your brother, your sister, your father have been killed in a war that people don't know why they're fighting.
14: Um, I reckon it's had a big impact on um, us here, um, both like emotionally and financially, because we've got to support our families back home. Like mum's working, like, and she sends money over to help her family. But, the war has caused a lot of like sickness and a lot of diseases and that kind of stuff. And homes are being wrecked. So they have nowhere to go. So it's, it affects mum financially and emotionally because she's got that stress on her. And she's also got the mortgage here to pay off. But like, I understand, like she, she needs to help her, her family. But yeah, that's the only thing that I reckon has mm-hmm. had on us. And you can, I can tell from her that she's stressed as well. So it's also got that effect on us as well as a family mm-hmm. here.
0: The messages from Australia to South Sudan are a plea for peace and the future. The new war in South Sudan is a bit shocking to me because I know
2: that after independence, everything is going to be all right. I thought widows, orphans and disabled who wounded during the war are going to live peacefully. But they are the victims of the new war. They are the ones who are dying day and night because of hunger and war itself. Every time I think about them, it reminded me that was Jenny who separated me with my beautiful kids and my lovely husband. I pray day and night to the almighty God of all nations to bring peace back to Sudan. South Sudan is a beautiful country, green land, full of all resources. God bless South Sudan. Thank you. South Sudan has got so,
15: so, so, so many things. Yeah. Uh, but up to now, since the independence in that 2000, there's nothing at all uh, being uh, planted. There's no grain. Everything is being brought from Uganda. The flour, the water, the food and all this and from Kenya, from all over these countries of East Africa. So, uh, it is very rich of so many things. We have heads, uh, the cattle, we have the fish, we have the agriculture is so, so very fertile. We have gold, we have minerals. We have what, what, everything is there, full. They say that uh, uh, South Sudan is the Eden of the world, or South Sudan is the food basket. Because of no security, it's very difficult to disarm people. It's very difficult. This has been done so, so many times, so many times. But it's very difficult. It is, they are disarmed here, and the commanders there go and bring the other way.
1: My husband is in South Sudan, helping the community in a village in Twiq East. My mom is still alive and living in the village. Although I am from South Sudan by birth, I am now an Australian citizen. I want to say to my fellow South Sudanese people, we all love you. It is time for peace. It is not time for war. It is time for peace.
8: I always see hope for the future. I cannot lose hope, because what happened when South Sudan got independence? Many people thought that South Sudan would never get independence, but it happened. Even if the country is the way you see now, the way you heard, I will not lose hope. The only problem now is the leaders. If something happened today, if a superman came and grabbed them and took them somewhere, the country would be alright.
0: We conclude, as we began, with a poem by South Sudanese poet, Akol Mien Kwol.
8: Oh, peace,
0: come. Peace,
6: I hear they are crying for you. But who will bring you? Peace, I hear they dream of you. But will their dream come true? Peace, I hear some people never live with you, but will they live to enjoy you? Peace, I hear they sing your name, but will their song, will you over? There is horror, suffering, fear, Oh, peace come.
0: This longed for peace may have been achieved with the signing of a ceasefire and power sharing agreement very recently on the 5th of August this year between President Salva Kiir and rebel leader Riek Machar. And for many young South Sudanese Australians the future is beckoning.
14: So I like, just finished up school I want to do a gap year because 13 years of school I don't want to go straight into my books. I want to just free my mind just experience the world because Coming from Africa to Australia, I haven't been anywhere. I've been, like, different states in Australia and that kind of stuff, but I really haven't been anywhere. So I want to travel the Asian Pacifics. I want to go to South America. And then I want to finish off in Africa and come back home and then do my studying. But, yeah. And then after that, I want to go to America and do basketball. So with the basketball, you either get a two-year scholarship or a four-year one. So I'm looking to get the four year scholarship so then I could do my registered nursing over there. So it'll be easier and it'll be, it'll be more consistent than doing two years and then come back and then have to do, do it again. So after, if once I do that and if basketball doesn't fall through, I want to come back and do nursing, registered nursing. And then there's also, I've always also, I've also wanted to do doctors without borders. So like travel and just get that experience and just that knowledge. Cause I've seen it on TV before, like on SBS, they had a, there was a... I think it was a movie or something about it. And it was really interesting and, like, these doctors on, like, ships and that kind of stuff and then just going to different countries. Not even just war-torn countries but also, like, um first-class um countries and that kind of stuff and just that different experience and the, how things work differently because I've only... Like, knowing the Australian system. So I wanna, like, I wanna see, like, even just go to America and see, how, like, what's their hospital like and how they do things and that kind of stuff. And like, and then go to, like, I don't know, India or Afghanistan. Cause I reckon it's very fascinating cause staying in one place is not gonna help me. And I also wanna give back. So I wanna get, connect that, connect, collect that knowledge and then eventually give back to the next generation or something. Or even just pass it on to my kids who then pass it on to their kids and then moves on. Cause I feel like, Um, education is the key to success and then to life and it's just yeah so i Mm -hmm. want to do that
0: i'm jennifer huxley and this has been the last episode in the series savannah to suburbia south sudanese australian stories thank you to akol mian kwal for permission to use his poem oh peace come from his collection the last train and to ajak kwai for permission to use songs from her album of cows women and war we acknowledge as sources for this episode, Sharon Hutchinson's 2000 paper, "Newer Ethnicity Militarized," and background papers written by Graham Hugo and Andrew Jacobowitz for the Australian Human Rights Commission's review, "African Australians." For further information about the series and full source references, or to contact us or subscribe for free to the series, go to morningsidesoundproductions.com, or you can access the podcasts from your usual source
12: yeah i can't be away i can't be with you anymore away The you away away